He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat, he said to him. Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the internal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is which of another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we are diving into one of the most interesting passages in all of Luke's gospel. It is a very perplexing parable that Jesus tells. Maybe you even heard it read this morning and thought to yourself, I wonder what in the world Tommy's going to say about that one. And if so, you're not alone, but uh, we'll ask the Lord's help, and I'm confident that there is a, a wonderful set of principles and very clear takeaways for us as disciples of Jesus. So let's ask his blessing as we begin our study. Jesus, we thank you that you do not leave any part of our person unaddressed, that there's no area that is off limits to your loving intention to make us more like you, to sanctify us for your purpose, and to even reflect the character of our Heavenly Father. Thank you for even being willing to speak into this area of the way we handle our wealth and our money so that we might be found as faithful stewards who understand things that are truly of lasting worth, eternal things. So Jesus, this morning, would you speak through me? Give me clarity to my preaching. May your word change our hearts from the inside out that we may serve God and not money. We pray this in your mighty name, amen. Back in 2018, a article appeared in the Sun Sentinel called The Promise and Prosperity of Westenzuela. Um, I found this article very interesting because it is my hometown, the town of Weston, Florida. Due west of Fort Lauderdale, right before you hit the Everglades, that's where it is. The interesting thing about it, though, is it has a nickname, Westenzuela, for a reason. Um, it has a very high percentage of Venezuelan immigrants that have settled there. Uh, the last count, it was the second highest density in the entire United States. Well, how did that happen? 
It's a very prosperous suburb, upscale. How did so many people from Venezuela end up there? Well, it's because of stories like that of a woman named Mary Diaz. Um, Mary was, uh, her, she and her family were very prosperous in Venezuela, but they could see the way the political direction was going, the increasing crime, the government starting to seize other people's assets, and they realized they had a choice to make, a choice for their future. Either they stay and lose everything, or they sell all they have and take the risk of trying to find somewhere else to live. Send the, what they could save ahead of them and try and start a new life. Uh, the way she said it in that article was, we realized there was no future left for us in our home for our children. So we decided it was time to get up and move what we had. Now that requires a great deal of foresight to be able to look ahead and see something like that coming, like an economy crashing or a, a country suddenly spiraling downward and making all that you've ever earned virtually worthless. Well, thankfully, many of the Venezuelans who did get out early enough, uh, they were able to start prosperous, peaceful lives. Now, there's a, a principle of worldly stewardship, of handling our wealth, that I think we all pretty intuitively get that you need to be able to look ahead and make good decisions to set yourself up for a season to come. Uh, maybe you have young kids in the house and it's beginning to save for one day them going off to college and the uh, outrageous bills that will be coming your direction when that happens. Or maybe you have a little girl that one day you think might grow up and get married. And so you start saving so that her wedding can have at least a few of the bells and whistles that she has her heart set on already. Or maybe you're thinking about that day when the number of years is piled up and your amount of energy isn't what it used to be and you aren't able to work as much or at all uh, as you used to. And as a result, you have been saving for retirement. Now, all those things are good goals to have. And you are probably been given lots of good advice on the need to plan ahead for them. But this morning, Jesus is going to point out that as Christians... As valuable as all those things are, if that's as far as your vision goes, it is far too short-term. That we need to be able to look in light of not just life events coming, but the greatest of all life events, the new world to come, and the resurrection life, and a new heavens, and a new earth. Now, Jesus is going to show us how important it is to be ready for eternity even in the way we handle our money. He will do this by way of a parable, a very perplexing one, and three principles of stewardship that apply to us all. And in all this, there will be one main idea that I will prayerfully try to convince you of this morning. If you are a steward of our Lord Jesus, someone who calls yourself his disciple, that you must learn to use your worldly wealth for things of lasting worth. That you must learn to use your worldly wealth for things of eternal worth. We'll see that in two sections. First, we'll look at the parable, the parable of a slippery steward, and verses one through eight and a half. And then second, we'll see these principles for each of us, three principles of stewardship for us to learn verses 8 and a half through 13. Let's begin that first section. That's the, the parable of the slippery steward. 
If you were with us last week, you heard entirety of chapter 15 preached. Uh, that passage showed us in that well-known parable of the prodigal son of the warm welcome waiting sinners of all types in the embrace of our heavenly father and even the celebration in heaven when any type of sinner repents. Through that passage, we know assuredly that we are children of God. But this morning, Jesus is shifting his attention. He, no longer is it, do you know you're a child of God? Now it's going to be, how does a child of God act? How does he rightly use the resources that his heavenly Father has given him? Uh, you can see that shift in verse 1. He also said to his disciples, so now he's no longer talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the disciples on this topic of stewardship. And in doing so, he tells a story. And it is a story of, of back then would have been a very everyday sort of scenario. See, there's this very rich man who has rich man problems. He is a commodity lender of some sort. Lots and lots of money from the sounds of things. He's able to lend people amounts that would have taken years of work to be able to earn that much money to buy yourself. And he has so much money and so many commodities to trade and lend and sell and the like that he can't do the dirty work himself. So he has what the passage calls a manager or a steward. Uh, that's the second character in the parable. Now, stewards, you have to understand, they don't own anything, and yet they have full authorization to use all the resources their master gives them on their behalf. Think of them a little bit like a money manager you might have. You give them the authority to use your money to invest it, not for themselves, but so you can get a return. Well, that's the arrangement here. He has this very important steward with a very important job, lending all these different commodities, oil and wheat. Uh, but there's just one problem. Uh, this steward is of dubious character, to say the least. Uh, he's a sort of steward who things just keep falling off the back of a truck, if you get my drift. Uh, whatever shows up, 10% of it just doesn't make it to the destination, and he keeps on wearing nicer and nicer Rolexes for some reason. Uh, the parable starts in verse 1. The rich man, he had this manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. The slippery steward has a reputation that's preceded him. Finally, it comes back to the rich man, which means the rich man has a choice. If he wants to remain rich, then it's time to give the slippery steward the old heave-ho. Which brings us to the next scene in verse 2, uh, a run-of-the-mill firing of someone who does not deserve their job. Verse 2, he called him in and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He gives him a grade-A quality tongue-lashing. In the process, lets him know, you are free to pursue other employment endeavors. You are fired. Now, the way the story progresses, we'll see, though, that it wasn't an all-at-once firing. He, maybe he gave him a day or two to settle up the accounts, to close the ledgers, to put all of his possessions in his desk into that little cardboard box. But at the end of the day, he will be rid of this worthless steward. That's the point so far. This is where the parable gets interesting. Because in verse 3, it's as if the time slows down in the story. And we're given a window into the inner monologue, the inner thought life 
of this no good steward as he's getting chewed out. Read with me in verse 3. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. He has a very real dilemma on his hands. Uh, my father-in-law is uh, a business owner. He does cabinets and high-end kitchens and that sort of stuff. It means he's the sort of guy with a lot of power tools, the skills to use them, and all the calluses necessary to get any job done on his hands. Now, I, on the other hand, you know, before I was called to ministry, I was a computer programmer. Um, these days, I don't have a lot of swinging hammers, except for the odd occasion where I end up desperate enough to try to do something myself. So we found ourselves in a situation where he'd come to visit us. As he often does, he tries to help with the projects that are outstanding in our home. And uh, clearly, I don't have the number of power tools he does or the amount of skill and probably not the right number of calluses as well, because I'm just not doing a good job of whatever project we were doing. So he eventually just stops me. He says, Tommy, just stop, stop. Show me your hands. And so I held my hands up. He said, you see these hands? You see those hands? Those hands are for flipping Bible pages. They're not for doing this sort of work. <laughs> and I, I thought, you know, point well made. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. Well, that's a similar sort of thought that the slippery steward is having. He realizes he doesn't have the broad shoulders and strong back to be able to dig ditches. He's not strong enough for that. And on the other hand, his pride, his pride's not ready for the shame of being forced to beg. Too weak to dig, too proud to beg. What does that leave a man to do? Well, he is the sort of man that always seems to land on his feet. And in this moment, he comes up with a eureka moment, a way to give himself a soft landing. You can see it's forming in verse four. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may say to me, uh, people may receive me into their houses. So in other words, he realizes that his 24 hours that he's been given to close the accounts presents him with a very narrow window of opportunity. And maybe, just maybe, if he plays his cards right, there'll be something for him after this season of having lost his job. Well, what is this devious plan he came up with? Well, that's what we see in verses 5 through 7. Um, he sets a series of meetings. Jesus gives us two examples, but it's meant to uh, encompass the full array of customers that the rich man had. And you might say that what he does is start a flash discount program designed to generate goodwill for himself personally at the expense of his employer. Verse 5, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe the master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. Now, this is a very devious plan, undoubtedly. He, he has, as a steward, full authority to make all sorts of decisions for his master. So using that 24 hours to its maximum, he makes sure that he gets through everyone in the ledger. Oh, you owe a hundred measures of oil? Let's just slice that in half. I hope you enjoy it. Remember who it was who did that for you. 
Or you have, a, a, oh, 100 measures of wheat? Let's just take 20% off the top of that. Remember my name when we bump into each other on the street a week from now. Now, all of this is undoubtedly designed for the purpose he said earlier. It's so that after he's fired, he will have goodwill with these former customers, and they will scratch his back like he scratched theirs and welcome him into their lives, welcome, them, welcome him into their homes. Now, this is where people get tripped up with this parable, uh, because frankly, many interpreters are embarrassed that Jesus would tell a story in which a man is engaged in immorality and, as we'll see in a second, seems to be commended for it. So there have been some very creative interpretations that have tried to avoid, I think, the obvious way Jesus told this story. Uh, One of the most popular ones is that the steward wasn't actually doing anything wrong, uh, that the law of Moses actually had limits on what you could charge in terms of interest for loans, and so he was just removing the built-in interest to these transactions. Now, that wonderfully inventive, but I'll just point out in the very next verse, Jesus has the master refer to him as an unjust steward. Uh, That seems to imply that he is, in fact, doing something wrong. And in fact, if you remember the way parables work, uh, parables are not allegories. Allegories are meant to have a series of connections, usually pretty much the whole story that maps onto your life and circumstances. Parables are different. They're stories that usually have one main point. And usually you find that main point in the surprise or the punchline of the story. That's what it's about, not all the other details. And if we focus on the punchline, I think it all falls into place. Verse 8 is the punchline. It's what the master does after he finds out about the actions of his slippery steward to defraud him. Verse 18 the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The master tips his cap to one smooth operator. He realizes maybe a day or two after he's been fired and finally he gets in and opens up the ledger. He sees all the discounts, connects the dots. That no good steward. I got got by him. Now, in no way is Jesus or the, manage, the owner in this parable intending to somehow justify the immoral actions of the man, as if we are to take immoral actions ourselves. Again, that would be to misapply the parable. I think what the owner is saying here is a bit like a couple of Canadian agents. Um, I read the story of a guy named Gerald Blanchard. Um, He was a very uh, high-profile and ingenious robber. Uh, He did a number of heists and robberies that frankly seem like they come out of movies, if not for the fact that the agents that finally caught him verified all of it. Uh, One of his most famous ones, he stole the Australian crown jewel. Um, It's called the Star of Sisi. It's in this very highly guarded manner. And he came up with this plot where he turned off the alarm system the day before and unlocked a window. And the fun part was he hired a plane to parachute out of in the middle of the night to land on top of the building, climbed inside, replaced the pearl with a fake one, and no one was the wiser for several weeks. He pulled it off so perfectly. The the agents that caught up with him said, he's quite bright. 
I'll give him an A plus for commitment. I think that level of tipping your cap to someone who's not because they're a criminal, but because that's a pretty incredible level of creativity shown in their criminality. I think that's what Jesus is using in this story. Not at all saying he's excused for what he's doing, but just saying, man, that steward, he knew how to look out for number one and even how to use his present resources to prepare for a season that was about to come. Now, how are we to apply this parable then? Well, thankfully, Jesus gives us three very direct applications, and that brings us to our second point this morning. Three principles of stewardship, second half of 8 through 13. Three principles that apply to all of us because each and every one of us have everything in our lives on loan from God. Say it again. Each and every one of us have everything in our, in our lives on loan from God. The time you have, the job you've been given, the money you've earned, your family, your friends, your coworkers, all of it is given by God. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, you have a stewardship over all those things he's given you. Now, as a result, Jesus, he's going to focus in specifically on our money because often this is the main thing that causes his disciples to stumble. So he'll give us three principles of stewardship related to our money so we can be faithful servants. The first is stewards must plan for eternity through their generosity. Stewards must plan for eternity through their generosity. Jesus says in the second half of verse 8, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Jesus says that we as Christians could learn something from the worldly wisdom of unbelievers. You see, even unbelievers, because they don't have... A, another Lord to serve, they know how to serve capably the almighty dollar. They know how important it is to plan ahead for unforeseen expenses, uh, to be ready to have a full enough retirement account. They know how to plan for things coming out of self-interest, if nothing else. And in fact, they're very shrewd in doing so. Jesus says they show quite a bit of worldly wisdom in the way they handle their finances. Now, by comparison, many Christians are remarkably short-sighted. Now, I don't think this means that Jesus thinks we're bad at using the stock market or we're not having enough in our savings. Now, he's saying that because Christians have another future in view that the world does not. Uh, we know this world will not go on forever. Uh, one day, this world and everything in it, including everything we own, will expire. And on that day, all the treasures we've stored up for ourselves will be utterly worthless. But there is another world, a world to come, a new heavens and a new earth where the kingdom of God that's invisible right now will be visible, where true treasures will be entrusted to all the faithful servants of the Lord. So how short-sighted is it? 
is that if as Christians we only think of all of the things ahead in this earthly life and we never think of how we're managing our money in light of eternity. Jesus makes that direct application in verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Uh, there is some question here who it is that's welcoming you into eternal dwellings, undoubtedly supposed to be the kingdom of God. Some would say it's God himself, and it's just written in plural. Sometimes the Bible does that. I think the better way of understanding it is, in fact, it's those people who your generosity has blessed. Uh, all the people that you're giving to a missionary allowed to go and hear the gospel preached so that they might be saved in a place where Christ would otherwise not have been preached. All the people who, through your faithfulness and giving to your church, went through the children's ministry program and learned to know and trust Jesus through a faithful Sunday school teacher. All the people that, through your giving, were able to come to our church and learn a little bit of English in ESL, and be introduced to someone that introduced them to Jesus. Jesus says that there will come a day where even if you never get a thanks for any of your generosity in this life, one day in the kingdom of God, there will be a welcome party. And all the people that you have touched with your various gifts, well, they will say thank you and welcome you to your eternal home. Now, again, we do not at all subscribe to the idea that you can buy your way into heaven, either by giving enough or through any other works. Remember, this is all in the context of already being a child of God from chapter 15, and yet those children can expect that whatever we give away in this life will be more than given back in thanksgiving on the day when we arrive in the courts of heaven. I got a letter from an organization that helps send pastors off into the parts of the globe that don't have much uh, theological education. Uh, those churches are very underserved because very rarely do their pastors get the level of education needed to preach the word of God in a powerful way. And so this organization sends people who are uh, fit for training other pastors to go to those places teach them how to rightly divide the Word of God and thereby bless their churches and their ministries. Um, I've been able to give a small amount of money to that ministry, and after a few months, I got a letter from them. It was a report of the trip that had just happened, and it described how this trainer had gone into this remote place and had spent this time there with these pastors and how they made so much progress in that time, and it even had some snapshots of the way their ministry was flourishing as a result and said at the end, thank you for being a part of what God is doing in this place. I think that's a little picture of what Jesus is describing on a far grander scale. There's not a person that you have touched through your generosity, not a citizen in the kingdom of God that will not express their gratitude to each of us for the way God used our faithfulness and joy in giving to cause the gospel to be preached and the saints to be built up. It's the first principle. Second principle. Stewards know that to be faithful in little 
is to be given greater responsibility in the future. Stewards know that to be faithful in little is to be given greater responsibilities in the future. That's what he says in 10 through 17. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Um, before the Lord called me into ministry, I had a job as a computer programmer. And this particular programming shop had a very distinct way of bringing on new programmers. They would enter on the bottom of the totem pole, um, and they would be given a number of very low-stakes tasks to do. Tasks that even if you messed up, nothing too bad would happen. Uh, you would make this banner look nice, or you would squash this low-stakes bug, or the worst duty of all, you would go through and you would write boring notes about the boring code that someone else wrote. Um, no one loved doing it. But there's a reason you started doing that. It's because the levels of responsibility quickly became very high stakes. Uh, we had very affluent contracts, well, very high stakes contracts with very high expectation customers. And if you were to be the programmer in the meeting with them, writing the software tailored just for their needs that earned that big paycheck, well, they better be sure that you were going to do a good job. So they waited to see how you did in the small stuff before you got assigned to the big stuff. Um, my guess is you probably lived through something like that, maybe in your work or in your family. You've had some level of responsibilities relatively low, and when you proved yourself, showed you were capable, showed you were trustworthy, then maybe someone entrusted you with something greater. Well, according to Jesus, the Father uses the same logic in the kingdom of God. And this whole life is, in a sense, a proving ground for just how faithful we are as stewards. God gives us a certain amount of worldly wealth. Uh, some of us, it's comparatively a lot. Some of us, comparatively, comparatively little. What matters is not the number of zeros behind the amount of money God gives. What matters is, are we faithful with it? I think there are three ways you can think of what this sort of faithfulness looks like. Well, first would be integrity. Um, are you like the slick steward, always trying to find a corner to cut? Uh, are you failing to pay your obligations? Are you not a person of your word? Are you holding on to that little bit extra by playing fast and loose with the terms of a contract? Now, it may seem like you're getting away with it and enjoying the benefits in this life, but according to Jesus, you are on an evaluation period of your usefulness in the kingdom of God. Conduct yourself with integrity if you would hope to be entrusted with far greater responsibility in the world to come. Second is value. Uh, we don't want to be like that unfaithful steward who was accused of wasting the possessions of his master. It's possible to waste possessions by simply not doing our homework and not finding the best use for the available resources God has given us 
In this sense, we need to be a bit thrifty, even bargain hunting, looking for the highest value for the resources the Lord has given so that the name of Jesus might be glorified to the most of our ability. Now, I don't think this means we all need to be actuaries about every dollar that's spent of ours or our churches or a missionary's budget, but I do think that we need to ask the question, what is the best use for the purpose of the gospel for the money that we have been given? If we're not faithful, in this sense, looking for value for the kingdom of God, then we shouldn't expect to be given greater responsibility when that kingdom comes to earth. The third is mission. It's very easy to take the money that you've been given and have justification for spending it on yourself instead of the way that your Lord Jesus wants you to spend it. I mean, after all, you work for it. You work hard for it. So you feel a little bit entitled to spend it on yourself. But that's the exact wrong way to think about the money we've been given. All of it belongs to Jesus, and he graciously tells us to spend what's needed on our own needs and the needs of our family, and yes, even to be able to enjoy life, but, but we can't lay claim to all of it and think that anything we give to G, back to Jesus is a bonus. We need to ask, are we spending these resources the way that our master intends us to? Now, parents, I think you have another layer of stewardship as long as you have kids in your house. You see, you have all the same stewardship we've described here, but you also have the stewardship of teaching these principles to your children. I once saw a family that did this really, really well. Uh, the father had a job in finance. He was really good at managing money, and quite frankly, he made a lot of it, a lot of it by anyone's standards. But they were a family that knew this, these stewardship principles, which meant they lived well below their means. They consistently gave to their local church as well to missionaries, and they looked for ways to be spontaneous in their giving. I, I remember they were very often the first people to step forward to be able to fund short-term trips when they came out. And they had a heart to teach all these principles to their kids. So they talked with them about how they gave and why they weren't spending money that it may seem like they had right to. And I saw the fruit of it in the life of one of their sons. He got to high school and he decided he was going to go on one of these short-term trips. And instead of asking his parents to pay for it or raising money by sending out support letters, which are it's fine to do, but the Lord laid on his heart that he had a working lawnmower and working legs, and he was going to use his summer to make all the money he needed. And so he went out, and he started a little lawn care business, and about halfway through the summer, he had raised all the money he needed to be able to go on that trip. But he didn't stop there. Instead, he kept mowing lawns the whole way through summer, and he gave his leftover money to the others on the trip who had a shortfall in what they had been able to raise. I hope you want to see that level of faithfulness and generosity produced in your kids. I hope we as a church want to see that reproduced in our ministry together. And I'll just point out, you can't do that without talking about stewardship of the money God's given you. So we don't talk about these sort of stories to put a badge on our chest. We don't do it to get the attention on us. Uh, we do it to show and to model and to inspire others to show the same level of faith that they might take the call to stewardship themselves and find the joy of serving Jesus with their worldly wealth.
There's a third and final level of stewardship. That is, stewards must have hearts fully devoted to Jesus. They must have hearts fully devoted to Jesus. That last verse, Jesus describes the fact that there's not room in our hearts to serve two masters. Sooner or later, we will have to choose. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I've heard it said, and it rings true to me, uh, that many Christians try to straddle the fence when it comes to serving God and serving money. Uh, we like to think that we could serve God on Sunday, and yet when it comes time to chase the almighty dollar and especially to spend it, well, then we're happy to serve our money, at least for the other six days of the week. But according to Jesus, that's an untenable situation. And in fact, eventually, you will have to choose. It's a fork in the road. So what's it going to be? Will you serve God or will you serve your money? Now, there's one way of reading that verse that comes off very harsh, duty-driven. You can't serve God and money, so you better make sure you serve God. And that's true. Consequences of not doing so are very, very high. But I think there's another way of reading that verse that's more true to Jesus' intention. And that's filled with love and joy. You can't serve God and money. Uh, would you let go of your worldly wealth so you can take hold of something of eternal worth? To have a heart filled with love and joy, fully devoted to Jesus. Uh, I became a Christian right near the end of college. I was working that programming job and I had my career track ahead of me. I was making very good money for my age. But my priorities were shifting very dramatically. And I found myself, well, one of the first areas that the Lord really painfully leaned into my sanctification was this area of love of money. Uh, frankly, I loved the American dream and thought of driving a really nice car, living in a really big, nice house. After all, I lived in a very affluent suburb. I saw it all around me. But little by little, I found that stewardship was a far, far higher calling. I began to value not the wealth that the Lord had given me, but things of eternal worth. I started, frankly, out of duty. Uh, I pr pretty quickly figured out that I was supposed to give a certain chunk of all the money that came in at a per flat percentage I just, at the top, gave to the church. It was painful, but I learned to do it. I knew it was the right thing to do. But where I really grew in my joy and love for the Lord was a more spontaneous form of giving. I had some friends that came to me, and they wanted to go on one of those short-term trips, like a filter of hope thing we were, Jeff was talking about earlier. And they came, and they told me about their need and told me about what was going to happen if they got the money to go. And I saw the excitement and joy in their faces. And I just knew Jesus was putting on my heart to give toward their trip. And somehow or the other, I got in my head a number that seemed uncomfortably large to me. And I wrestled with it. And eventually, I thought that this was the right thing to do. So I wrote two checks, put them in two envelopes, and gave them to those friends. Now, at the time, that seemed like an incredible sacrifice. With a little more perspective, I've been able to see that the Lord calls us to different levels, 
based on what he's provided. And yet something incredible happened. When I let go of those envelopes with those checks in them, I felt like a weight come off my shoulders. And I felt a level of joy and love for Jesus that I had never experienced before. Uh, since then, I've had that same experience, different situations, different types of giving, but always with the same prompting. And the Lord brings some opportunity for me to let go of my earthly wealth, to take hold of something of eternal worth. Our family regularly talks about these things because we want to grow in this grace of giving. And most of all, we want to be found as faithful stewards. So my dear brothers and sisters, as the Lord has enabled you with the resources he's provided to you, would you remember that it is no contest when you consider the two masters you could serve? Oh, your money may promise you comfort and peace and status, but compared to what Jesus provides, there is no comparison at all. A forever peace from knowing that your life has been declared not guilty by his blood. Endless prosperity through the riches that were rightly his, given freely to you in this eternal world to come. And the status as a very child of God, an inheritor of all these things to come. So when that moment comes, don't hang on to your worldly wealth. Release it with joy so you can take hold of something of eternal worth so your heart can be filled with the love and joy of Jesus. And one day, you will be repaid and more for everything that you've given for his sake. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts to remember how that was all accomplished through the death of Jesus. Would you pray with me as we approach the Lord's table together? Oh, Jesus, we are so thankful for your measureless grace to sinners like us. Uh, none of us, through our faithfulness, could ever deserve anything from you or from your Father. We could not, by our own effort or even sacrificial giving, earn ourselves a place in your family or a seat at your table. It's only by your blood that was shed and your body that was broken and your resurrection from the dead that we can know that we are called beloved children of God, sons and daughters, and yes, inheritors of the things to come. Uh, Jesus, even this morning, we confess that we have not been as free in our generosity and fully devoted in our stewardship as we should be. Uh, Jesus, I pray for anyone who's here this morning and maybe they're feeling that level of conviction, knowing that you are calling them to a level of generosity that maybe seems a little scary to them. I pray that you would fill their heart with your love and joy, even as they contemplate that step of faith. I pray that you would remind them that you are eager to forgive and to restore for all the failings that we've had even those related to how we handle our money. And Jesus, I pray that you would allow us as a church to be joyful and united in the way that uh, we celebrate what you have instituted in the Lord's table. 
Uh, remind us again that, yes, we are sinners saved by grace. And remind us again of the glorious future that is surely ours, when we will dine with you in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, Jesus, we come to this table now with faith and expectation as humble stewards. We ask your help to do this well in your mighty name. Amen.